Hello, hello. How's everybody today? Yeah? Be honest. Be honest. Yeah? Some people doing well, some people scraping by. It's okay. Um, it's a good place to be. Whatever the situation is, it's good to be seeking the Lord and uh, singing some of his promises and uh, hopefully hearing his word give us some guidance for what's to come. Uh, third service, thanks for coming to the third service and not the middle service. We love everybody that doesn't come to the middle service. No, just kidding. We love them too. Um, but it's pretty full. And um, if you're just coming back after being online for a long time, welcome. It's good to have you back. Um, for those that are online, thanks for sticking with us and tracking with us. I think it really is important so that the day when we do get to be together or, or as we go into the future, we can really have that united heart um, and our lives can be knit together. Uh, that's something that's really big around here. We really do um, want to make sure everyone knows that uh, this church is not a one hour a week type church. We don't want people to just come watch a show and go. Um, we, we, we don't want that because we know that following Jesus requires a lot more than one hour a week um, if we want to be strong and if we want to actually accomplish what he has for us to do. And it is true that we have a lot that we need to accomplish. There are a lot of challenges out there in the world, right? A lot of difficulties, a lot of uh, real horrible things that are taking place um, in, in society. And um, yet, with all the challenges and all the great um, difficulties that are out there, the church is alive and well. And uh, it was funny, this week I got a bunch of letters in the mail um, from like nonprofit organizations, Christian nonprofit organizations. And though it's not like my favorite thing to get mail from anyone really, um, it was like, uh, it, was, it was neat to, um, to just be reminded how many followers of Jesus are out there fighting for what's good. Um, in particular, one of these envelopes was for an organization that's fighting for, for unborn children. And, uh, and they're just one of many organizations that have rallied together and in the name of Christ are fighting for unborn children. And, and there's you know, so many other things, fighting for, I was with a guy this week who basically rented a facility and, and the whole reason he did it is he just, I, I just wanna have a place for people who are homeless to come and get some reprieve. And uh, he's doing it with his own money and uh, from his own passion, and I just thought, this is incredible. And, and how many agencies and organizations in the name of Christ are out there trying to make a dent in some of the challenges in those ways. It's really a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of the body of Christ. And believe it or not, drum roll, no drum roll. There you go. Oh, wow. Look at this. Look at third service. Second service give me no drum roll. I get no drum No, just kidding. Um, um, believe it or not, it is a really, really wonderful time to be a Christian. And, and the reason I say that is because Christianity shows itself to me more powerful in times of adversity than any other time. Jesus shows up in our own lives, right, when things are difficult. At least that's when we become most aware of him. And it's beautiful that in a time where Christianity or Judeo-Christianetic, all these things becoming more and more unpopular, um, it's really a time for the church to rise up and to take its stance as the alternative community that Christ has called us to be. And in those places, we're gonna get to see the full power of the Lord revealed and more people ready to receive as well. So take hope, take heart. 
um, bride of Christ, you are beautiful, you are necessary, and uh, each one of you, just each one of us, is so important to the whole. It's so important to the whole. And it's not that each one of us have to solve all the problems in the world. We're just supposed to solve and, and, and lean into the ones that are right in front of us that God has given us. And if all of us will do the little, it'll be a lot. It'll really accomplish a lot. So that's what's going on in our society. That's what's going on at the church. Um, and now we're gonna go to 1 Kings. If you wanna grab a Bible and turn there, or if you wanna scroll or flip or whatever you do on your phone, um, go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings is, a, is, is something in the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot of people in the world who would not consider it Old Testament, even though it is old. Um, it would just be their testament, um, our Judeo, um, our, our, those who practice Judaism. But for us, in this library of Scripture, we've kind of you know, divided between um, what happened before Christ and after Christ as the Old Testament, the New Testament. Both of these testaments, we believe as a church, are very important. They culminate in Christ. The Old Testament is looking forward to um, the coming of Messiah. The New Testament is, is remembering back the coming of Messiah. So we really hold all of this whole library of Scripture as to be inspired by God and beneficial and for, for us today. So, but we are going to the Old Testament. You do have to kind of put a little bit of a different lens on a little bit as you're reading through the Old Testament and what was going on in that day. Some of it wouldn't apply well to this day, but, but the principles do. Um, I'm so thankful we have the New Testament to help us interpret um, the Old Testament. In some ways, you can look at the New Testament principles always have Old Testament pictures. And for me, pictures are good when I'm reading a book or doing anything. Um, so anyways, we're gonna be going through 1 Kings. 1 Kings was written by a guy named Jeremiah, tradition tells us. And Jeremiah was a prophet, and Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he's bummed out a lot. Not a lot of people listened to what he had to say. It was tough to be Jeremiah. Sometimes he would speak the word of God in boldness and clarity and they'd put him in a dungeon. Or they'd put him in a pit and not let him eat for days. Or they'd make fun of him or ridicule him. But this was Jeremiah's lot as he was a prophet to this time of the kings of Israel. There wasn't always kings in Israel and, and now they don't have kings as well. But there was a time where the kings were the way that Israel was run. And during that time, Jeremiah prophesied, and he kept prophesying about this decline, that all these divisions, all this secularization that was going on in the nation was actually leading people to the edge of a cliff where they were gonna drop off, and they were gonna experience pain and frustration. In some ways, Jeremiah was talking to them as if they were the frog in the pot. You guys all probably heard that illustration. Don't know if it's true, I've never tried it because it seems kinda rude. But it's the idea that you, if you take a frog and you put it in a boiling pot of water, it'll just jump right out because it's like, that's hot, man. I don't want to be there. But if you take a frog and you put it in a cold pot of water and you turn up the heat, the frog will stay there and eventually die. Siri was telling a joke, um, but... I don't know why it came up. But, but anyway, so the frog in the pot will remain there as the heat turns up and eventually it will die because it doesn't ever really figure out what's taking place around it. And I feel like as a church, we, we need Jeremiah's. We need Jeremiah to speak into our situation so that we don't wake up one day and realize that we've been burnt badly. I think last year as we kind of wrestled with all the different, you know, strong, powerful ideologies be put around, everybody was claiming high moral ground. Some of us really got 
kind of fooled or at least confused in some of that. Another image that came to mind after I was thinking about the frog, because I didn't want to think about the frog in the pot for very long, because it's kind of sad. I was thinking about the giant in like Jack and the Beanstalk or whatever, and the only way they could get rid of the giant was they had to wait till he fell asleep, but then once he fell asleep, they tied him all up, and so when he woke up, he wasn't able to go. And I'm nervous that as a church, if we don't really pay attention to what's happening and stay alert and stay awake, we're going to find ourselves tied up and kind of in bondage to different things in the world, carrying the weight and the sin of the world and become unable to really do what God's called us to do. But because I'm a Bible guy, I was thinking about the giant getting tied up and that made me think about Samson. Sorry, you just have to track with my brain for a little bit here. But then Samson was a guy who was really able, empowered and strong and ready to do whatever the Lord wanted him to do. He was able to defeat the enemy and protect the people of God. But somewhere in that process, he didn't really you know, hold tightly to his Nazarite vow and his, his consecration. He started to play around with sin and not think it was such a big a deal. He started to rely on his own strength and not think the hair was that big a deal. And he told Delilah, hey, if you tie up my hair, then I'll be weak. And so she tied it up and he was still strong. But then the next thing he said was, if you cut it, then I'll be weak. And so she cut it while he was sleeping. He woke up and the Philistines were upon him and he was powerless. And the saddest verse in the Bible says, and Samson did not know that the Holy Spirit had departed from him. And Jeremiah was watching this happen with the people of God in his day that one day they woke up and the Spirit of God has departed from them. And I do not want to stand by and watch our church or the church at all in America wake up one day and realize the Spirit of God has departed from us. And so we want to listen to what Jeremiah has to say in his day so that we can be awake in our day. Amen? Amen, amen, amen. And another thing that um, is, is, uh, comes to mind is the weed. And I'm, I'm going to be putting a lot of kind of things in our minds that I'm going to borrow in the next weeks of messages. So, sorry, it's not going to be like weird. No hypnotism or whatever. Don't look at my hands right now. Just kidding. Don't. But like, I'm just, like, this is an intro, so I'm going to be saying some things. If it's not all neat and clean for you, that's okay. Just hang on to those things, because hopefully they'll kind of come back in the weeks to come as we go through this series. But another image is, is that of the weeds getting choked, or the weeds choking out the good fruit, or the good, um, the, the good seed that was growing up, the weeds choking it out. And I'm just wanting to make sure we, we can name the weeds, we can be aware of the weeds that are trying to choke out what God is wanting to do in our fellowship, in our lives, in our own souls, in our households, and in the institutions we're a part of, including this church. So that's why we're going to the book of First Kings. That's what Jeremiah was doing. Kings traces the history of God's covenant people under Israel's kings, beginning with the reign of Solomon. These remarkably re relevant writings include prophetic interpretations of how each king affected the spiritual decline of Israel and Judah through its continuous divisions and secularizations. They were set apart as God's chosen nation but decided they wanted to be like the other nations. Their success and prosperity caused them and their kings to become lax in the ways of Yahweh and to bring in the ways of other gods. The divisions include, and some of you this will be a little history lesson for you, for some of you if you don't really read, you know, um, register all of these different things I'm talking about, you might need to read through the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, get yourself freshened up. Um, but basically there was a division between Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel and, and God appointed him and Saul at one point in, in his kingness, in his leadership, he became so concerned about what the people thought and not as concerned about what God thought. 
And because of that, God rejected him and said, I'm gonna put someone in as king who's, who's a man after my own heart. And that's David, because David really cared more about what God thought than what all the people thought. That's a beautiful thing and important for our day. Then you have David and Absalom. David and his own son, there was a conflict there, a division there, where Absalom tried to take over authority and kingship from David. Um, it caused a battle, a civil war of, sense, of sorts. Adonijah and Solomon, chapter one of 1 Kings. Actually, as David dies, two of David's sons try and take ownership. Solomon wins out. Rehoboam versus Jeroboam, this is coming a little later, after Solomon was king, and, and there was a, now a decision who was gonna lead after Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam, and everybody thought he should be king, but as he became king, he decided that the way to really be king was to, was to tax everybody, and to come on strong, and to demand people follow him, instead of earn a voice with the people, and what happened was not unity, what happened was division. And the 10 tribes of the north said, we're out of here. And the two tribes of the, of the south remained with Rehoboam. Um, but the 10 tribes actually followed after a guy named Jeroboam. Now I know. If I was writing the Bible, I wouldn't have used Rehoboam and Jeroboam right next to each other. It's so confusing. Which one's the north? Which one's the south? I don't know. Why they got to be both Boams? I don't know. But they are. So deal with it. So anyways, we also have Israel versus Judah. The 10 tribes of the north retained the name Israel. The two tribes in the south became the nation of Judah for that time. Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So there's division on which really is the capital. And actually that shows up again in Jesus' day, thousands of years later, a thousand years later, when, when the Samaritan woman says, you Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we say you're supposed to worship in Samaria. So you see how all this stuff is working together. The Old Testament is so important. Um, and then you have Yahweh versus Baal. You have monotheism versus polytheism. This was one of the craziest things that was taking place in Israel is that during Solomon's reign, it wasn't that they ever stopped worshiping Yahweh in the temple. They just started adding other gods. It'd be like in this place if all of a sudden you, you saw us take down the cross and we put up some other religious symbol of some sort. I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> but, but if you guys came in, hopefully you would be aware enough to go, Okay, it seems like living streams might have changed a little bit, and, and you would be right, and you should go somewhere else. This place is not right. It's not good. But what was happening in their day was it wasn't that they took down the cross, so to speak. They just started putting other religious symbols over here or over here. We don't want to stop worshiping Yahweh, but let's put a little Baal thing over there, because that way if we get all the goodness of Yahweh, maybe we'll get the goodness of, of Baal as well and the Asherah poles, and on and on and on. They begin to build these high places of worship in, in Israel, adding to the worship of Yahweh. But what they didn't realize is that the God of the Bible is a jealous God. Not in the petty, kind of evil jealousy, but in the jealousy of a woman who says, I do not want to be one of your wives. I'm, no, I'm not making fun of women there. I'm saying that the right jealousy when a woman, if a guy brings home another wife, that woman says, no, 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 I'm not gonna sit here and take this. I'm, a, I'm jealous for your love. And if you, don't, if you want multiple, that means you don't want me, and so I'm out. And that's what happened in Israel. God said, if you want all these other things, fine, you can have them, I'm out. And they found themselves in captivity and exile. The other divisions are we wanna be like the other nations versus we wanna be set apart as God's people. 
That's a tough thing within the church today. We, a lot of us, we want to be like other nations. We want to be like the way that other people are saying. We want to adhere to other ideologies and other things because it's hard to be counterculture. It's hard to, to stick with what the God has us, has us to do. It's unpopular. Not what's going on. More taxes and less taxes is actually in there, which is kind of fun right now. Everybody having fun with that, taxes? Um, and then ultimately, God's ways are old-fashioned versus God's ways are right and true and good was the debate of that time. And we'll get into some of that as we get into First uh, Kings 2. So ultimately, you've got Saul was the first king. After Saul became David, and then after David, Solomon became king, and then after that, there was a divided kingdom, and that's where the kings follows. There's about 25 different kings, and only five of them did anything very good. Um, which is sad, but that was the reality. Now you know why Jeremiah was such a weeping prophet as well. Um, there's one moment of, of real hope. Actually, there's a few moments of hope that are all described by this one. I, wanna, I want us to just grasp this before we jump in. It happens in 1 Kings 18, and it's this moment of awakening or, or revival, so to speak. And I know many of us are praying for awakening and revival in the church, praying for awakening and revival in America, all these things, and that's beautiful and wonderful. Um, and there were times where that happened. In 1 Kings 18, there's a guy named Elijah who's the prophet of Yahweh, and he sets up a big you know, match on the top of Mount Carmel between him and 450 prophets of Baal. And they go up to the top of this mountain and, and, and Elijah's basically called all the people together that would come to, to see who really is God. And this was his line. It was in the, the little opening video. It says, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Elijah said, enough of this. We're not going to do both. We're going to do one or the other. We're going to decide this day. And so he calls the prophets together. And he says, all right, you guys go first. Make a sacrifice. Build an altar, make a sacrifice. And if your God comes down and answers your pleas with fire and consumes the sacrifice, then we'll know that Baal is God and we should follow him. But if not, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna do that, same thing. I'm gonna build an altar, I'm gonna lay a sacrifice on it. And if Yahweh answers by fire, then we know he is God and we should follow him. So this is big moment. And so the prophets of Baal do their altar and they lay down their sacrifice and they start doing all their rituals to get the attention of Baal and to have him move. They even start cutting themselves after they're screaming and shouting just to try and get Baal's attention, showing how sincere and devoted they are. And then, this is no joke, Elijah at one point's like, maybe you should yell louder because nothing was happening. Seriously, it's in the Bible. You can talk trash as long as you're doing the right thing. <laughs> and then a little later, nothing happens, and he's like, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom or something. It's in there. Read it. And then after a while, nothing happens, and he says, all right, my turn. And he goes and he builds an altar just out of some stones in a very simple way, just like the Old Testament teaches or the, the, law, of, the law of Moses teaches. Then he prepares a sacrifice and lays it up there, just like the law of Moses teaches. And then he just prays a simple prayer and says, God, will you show him that you're the real deal? And God comes and answers with fire out of the sky and consumes the sacrifice. And in that moment, there is an awakening in the people that were able to be there and see that. 
when they dealt with the prophets of Baal and, and they, in that moment, turned to the Lord. And sad to say, it was a momentary revival. But what our nation needs, what our church needs, what your, your kids need, what your, your, your workplaces need, what your household needs, is, is we need to be people who are like Elijah, who listen to what the Lord is asking us to do and boldly and courageously we go out and we put the Lord's faithfulness on display for everyone around. Now, I'm not saying you should go to the top of Squaw Peak and try and meet someone there and call down fire from heaven. <laughs> I mean, if the Lord's telling you to do it, you could try it. But I don't know. But there are lots of things that the Lord is asking us to do. Lots of ways he is asking us to be bold and courageous and stand up for what is right and stand against what is not right. And if we do it, the Lord will come through and show himself faithful. So that's happened a few times. We'll get some other stories about those. But uh, that's a little bit of a recap of 1 Kings. Now let's go to chapter 2. And uh, we'll enter in. So when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong and show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that the Lord may keep his promise to you if your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. And so David is kind of deathbed situation. He calls Solomon in and he gives Solomon this final charge. He says, Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth. and You're gonna need to be strong. You're gonna need to stand up. You're gonna have to be a man. And here's what it means to be a man, Solomon. It means you observe the law of Moses. And you obey what's in there. That's what you, you need to do, Solomon. You need to observe the law of Moses and you need to obey what's in there, walk in what is in there. Now it's interesting because at this time, the law of Moses was probably about four or 500 years old. So there was a real debate at that time because the law of Moses came to the people when they were still in the wilderness, right? They had just got out of slavery in Egypt. They stop at Mount Sinai. The law of Moses comes down and now that law of Moses was helped guiding them into becoming a nation. And God led them to the promised land and they start to form into a nation. And over that four or 500 years, they went from that type of people to now really one of the world powers. Under David's leadership and now Solomon's, they, they really were becoming the world power. In Solomon's day, it was like they had no enemies. They had no one wants to fight them. Instead, all the nations would send delegations from their, their nation to come and just sit at the feet of Solomon to hear his wisdom. It's a time of massive prosperity and success in Israel. And here's David saying, Solomon, the best thing you can do is really get to know the law of Moses and walk in those ways. They didn't get to a place where they thought they knew better. They didn't get to a place where they thought those things are old and archaic. 
Those things came to us in a different time. They don't have application today. They're not important today. We know better. We've got new scientists. We've got hundreds of years of, of, of education and learning. So we don't need those old archaic laws. But David said to Solomon, this is what's gonna lead you to prosperity. This is what will lead you and our people to the most freedom and the most flourishing if you follow those laws. And hopefully you're catching what I'm trying to emphasize here because there's a debate in our world today. There's a real strong part of the church even that is starting to say that the laws of Moses or the scriptures as a whole are archaic and even oppressive. And we shouldn't be listening to them we shouldn't be observing their ways and walking in those. And if we fall prey to that, we're gonna find ourselves just like Israel did. In decline. And worse. But that was his call, and, and he says to them, says to uh, Solomon, not only that, but, but you must walk faithfully before them with all your heart and soul, and if you'll do this, you'll experience all that God has promised. Now, I think it's important that we unpack that word prosperity. If you observe these commands and you obey these commands, you will have prosperity. If you live faithfully in these things with all your heart, you will get what the Lord has promised you. And it's important that we remember prosperity when interpreted through the New Testament does not equate to the American dream. It doesn't equate to riches beyond your wildest imagination. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but the promise that comes to us through the scriptures, if we observe his ways and we obey his ways, we will prosper. But think a lot more about maybe Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not be in want because he's gonna lead us beside still waters and into green pastures to give us what we need. And he will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death and our cup will overflow. In that there isn't a promise to anyone that you won't have any more hard times. You'll still be dealing with the valley of the shadow of death, but you'll have the strength, you'll have the presence of God to help overcome it. Prosperity doesn't mean you won't have any more troubles or challenges. It means God will give you what you need to overcome whatever challenges and struggles you'll have in that day, and then when you wake up the next day, those challenges might be there again, and once again, God will give you what you need. The prosperity, think more about the fruits of the Spirit. The, 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 the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the type of prosperity God wants to lead us into when we walk in his ways. Real practically, I think one of the best things that can happen is you can have peace so you can actually sleep at night. I've seen so many people who forget simple things like Sabbath, simple things that are in the law of God, and they're just running at, at both ends of the, of the candle, and they're just going, 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 and they can't figure out why they can't sleep because their mind's so wound up. And so much of our society today has so many issues that could just be solved. People would just get a good night's sleep. Once again, that's the kind of prosperity God's talking about. You won't be totally consumed by the worries of this life, but you'll have a peace that passes understanding, which is far more you know, important than the next thousand or million dollars. It's one of the things we found with our homeless community that, that we get to hang out with all the time over here in our respite place is one of the best things we can do for them is just let them get a good night or a good nap. Just a couple hours of sleep and a shower 
They feel like they're totally different. They can think clearly again. It's been fun to be able to offer that. This is the prosperity that's being promised to us if we walk, if we observe the ways of God and we obey them faithfully. To sum it up, basically, this is one of the ways that it's shown that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a guy that really cared about what the Lord had to say and he's passing this on to his son. You know, Solomon, you need to learn about what God wants above everything else. David was a man after God's heart when he sought to do what was right in God's eyes more than what is right in his own eyes, in the eyes of popular opinion. And right now, we need the same heart. The world around us is clamoring, is, is claiming the high moral ground though it's through its clever and cunning humanistic philosophies and ideologies. But they are just castles made of sand. We need a hunger for a vision of the righteousness of God so that we can hold the line by observing what the Lord our God requires and walking in obedience. That is where freedom and flourishing will be found for you, your household, and whatever institutions you are a part of. I'm sorry, Cardi B, but the best fruit isn't always forbidden. It just feels that way because it's the only found through a lifetime of faithfulness to God and his ways. Anyone, 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 anyone? So that's the first thing that David's really unpacking here that really I think could help us understand how David was a man after God's own heart. David didn't get right all the time, but David really did wanna know what God wanted. And when he walked onto that battlefield, surrounded by Israel's army, under the command of Saul the king, and he looked down in that valley and he saw that giant blaspheming the name of God and the armies of Israel. And he saw the fear in everyone's eyes. David in that moment was gripped by what God wanted. And God wanted to show his strength on behalf of his people that day. But no one else was willing. No one else was courageous enough. No one else was so concerned about what God thought, they didn't care about anything else. And so David runs down into that valley, slinging his little sling, and he takes out the giant. And that was a mark of David's life. Even in the times where he had made mistakes, when he figured out what God wanted, he ran for it. He abandoned everything else to get it. The second thing that shows that David was a man after God's own heart comes in this next little passage. So pick up in verse five. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if, the, as if in battle. And with that blood, stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the, at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. 
Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. So here's this beginning, and it's interesting because David's talking about observing the Lord's commands and obeying them and walking them, and then David kind of shifts and he says, hey, Solomon, there's something else. There's some things that are going on that you need to deal with right away. Joab is a guy that was the commander of my armies, but he has done some things that have been very wrong, and he needs to be dealt with. He needs to be removed from his power. And if you don't deal with it now, it's gonna become a major problem later on. And sure enough, as you read 1 Kings, Joab was trying to do some things. And he talks about Shimei and says, this guy did all of these things in the past. And this is the way that his family is today, and they need to be dealt with. You need to watch out for them. It's interesting because in some ways what David is saying is, Solomon, there's gonna be things as you're a king that you have to deal with, and deal with them right away, and deal with them when they're small so they don't cause more damage. And it's interesting because later on, Solomon, who wrote Song of Solomon, talks about the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. And here David was basically saying, hey, if you wanna do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, you won't be afraid to deal with the little foxes that wanna destroy the vineyard. He'll go after those things. He'll be bold and courageous. And David was good at this. Whenever David saw sin in the camp, he dealt with it. Didn't mean that David didn't sin. Right after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah to cover it up, Nathan the prophet came and said, David, you are guilty. And in that moment, David, to show that he was a man after God's heart, he confessed and repented. And he started to do what was right. And later on, David did a census of all his army and was getting a little puffed up. And God had told him not to do a census in that way, and now people were dying because of it. The Lord was against them. When David realized it, David went all out to try and make right what he had done. And he knew he was supposed to buy a field, or he was supposed to go and buy a field and make a sacrifice on it. And so he goes to buy the field and make the sacrifice, but the guy who owns the field is like, look, man, you're the king, you just take the field. And David was like, no, I wanna pay full price. I don't wanna compromise or slack at all in doing what the Lord has asked me to do to make this thing right. And he was willing to deal with other people as well. And I think this is a call to us as Christians today that we need to deal with the little foxes that are trying to come in and destroy the vineyards of our souls, of our households, and the institutions we're a part of. You see, last year we were all called to really search our hearts and search the institutions we're a part of and see if there was any racism or systemic racism. I think it was a good call. It was important for us to do that assessment. It was coming out of a legitimate pain and frustration in the black community. And I remember going through that process and searching and saying, okay, Lord, search me, know me. Let me see where there's anything off and then the institutions I'm a part of. And, and just for me, the, the, the process went through and the people I processed with, we came to, came to the conclusion that there really isn't a ton of systemic racism in my own life or household or the institutions I'm a part of, but what I did see in the process was a ton of greed and pride and deceit 
And those things definitely can lead to racism. And there is racism and all of that in our society, but what God was bringing to my attention was more of those things. And so I wanna bring some of these things out. Part of my hope is that as we go through this process, we'll see the idolatry, we'll see the things that are trying to take root in our lives and in our church and be able to name them and reject them. But greed shows up in little ways, fudging a bit on your taxes, skimping on your giving to the Lord, relying on your savings and securities instead of trusting in the Lord. One thing that the writer of 1 Kings really wants to make sure is we understand that Solomon spent seven years building the temple of the Lord and 13 years building his own house. And basically, we've gotta come to the understanding that all of the time talent and treasure that God has given you, the body he's given you, the brain he's given you, the beat in your heart and the breath in your lungs. He has given you all of that so that you will build his kingdom here on earth. That's what all of that is for. But for some reason we have begun to use all those things to build our own kingdom. And I'm not saying it's wrong for you to have those things and to have a kingdom, so to speak. But Jesus told us we gotta seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if we do that well, then he'll add to us all the things that we need. Basically, if we'll prioritize his business, he'll take care of our business. He's a lot better at business. And yet, in Solomon's day, even though he had this charge, he spent seven years building the temple of the Lord and 13 years building his own house. And so those little foxes, those little compromises, they ultimately lead to major sacrifices. And one of the things that God has given us to fight against greed in our lives is the faithful tithe. It's not a legalistic command It is to help make sure that the things of God are funded and cared for in the world, but it's more than that, something to keep our hearts from getting greedy. It's daily, monthly, weekly, whatever you do. It's that continual dealing with the little foxes that want to destroy the vineyard. In the the Old Testament, the practice was 10%. In the New Testament, it's much more generous than that. And if you're concerned that this is just a little ploy to get you to give more to Living Streams, then don't give to Living Streams. Give to something else, if that's really a challenge for you. I think this is a great place to give to, and I think the integrity here is beautiful. But but literally, if that's a check in your heart at all, please don't. Please don't. Give where you can give generously and cheerfully. For us as a practice, as an institution, we just decided last year, even though we qualified for the PPP, we got the PPP money and it was nice. For us, I'm not saying this is what you should have done or should do, for us, we just as an elder board realized the only way we can make sure that there is no little fox of greed making its way into our institution is to give it all back. And so we did. And we were also able to pay our personnel, you know, and we didn't even have to tap into our reserves. But these are practices that God has given us. 
Not so that we can be burdened, but so that we can find the most freedom and flourishing. The next thing, pride. Pride shows up in little ways like an unforgiving spirit or an unwillingness to say sorry. It shows up in an unhealthy ambition and striving. It shows up in seeking first your kingdom and satisfaction before God and others. It shows up in hatred or belittling of, ev- of others. That's the way pride shows up. We gotta find those things. We gotta deal with them because they're little foxes that wanna destroy the vineyard. It's also important for us to think biblically and when Jesus talked about the weeds that choked out the good soil, he named two things. He said the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Those are the things you gotta watch out for, he said to his disciples. And so we need to watch out for those things. The worries of this life can totally overwhelm us. And that doesn't mean there aren't worries in this life. But the practice that counteracts the worries of this life is worship. Worship is basically taking all of the burdens, all of the challenges, all of the big, scary things in our life, and then coming into God's presence and comparing them to him. And he's so much bigger. He's so much grander. And those things shrink in his presence. That's how David was able to take on the giant because the giant was puny in God's eyes. Another practice that's important is silence and solitude. And one of the things that came up as I was thinking about the little foxes is just distractions. I mean, the amount of distractions that are at our fingertips right here. Has anybody ever played Wordscape? I mean, give me a break. You can get stuck in there for hours. I was just realizing, man, and what's so funny is it's stressful. You're like doing it because you're like, whatever, but then you're like, I just need that one last word. I don't know what it is. They're not giving me no bonuses, you know? I mean, we, as a culture, are so distracted. The convenience that we live with It is unbelievable. And if we aren't really trying to cultivate some silence and solitude to make space for God, it's not going to happen. And these practices, again, are not for our salvation, but they're just so that we can make sure we don't end up like that frog in a boiling pot of water or that giant that slept when he should have been awake. The little foxes are there. And if we want to be people after God's heart, we won't let them stay. We'll shoo them away. Let's pray. Jesus, I really pray that your spirit would would shine the light into our souls, into our minds, and make it clear what little foxes are there. Lord, I pray that this message wouldn't land heavy on people, but instead it would meet them in their hunger and encourage them 
that you hear their prayers and you know their heart. I thank you for the young man in second service who said that it was about three months ago where he just realized he was just not able to get full or to get free or to get joy. And then he ended up severing some ties and relationships that he had. And he said it was immediate that his soul was lifted. And so this message was just confirming for him and so exciting to him that he was actually hearing from the Lord on his own. So I pray that that would take place, Lord, today. Build your bride, make her beautiful and powerful, I pray. Thank you for being such a good father that doesn't leave us the way we are, doesn't let us fall off the cliff.